Now, as I mentioned a bit earlier, we have Jeff Lynn with us uh, today, and he's going to be here for the next three weeks, so we thought we'd just introduce you to Jeff. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you, Robin. Now, many of you will know who Jeff is, but some of you may not. So, Jeff, who are you, and what do you do when you're not here at Trinity Church only on a Sunday morning? Uh, thank you, Robin. Um, it's lovely to be here with you again. Who am I? Well, I suppose I should acknowledge uh, it's Father's Day today. Uh, so I'm a son. Uh, my parents live in Sydney still, which is where I grew up. Uh, I'm married. I happen to be a father as well. We have three kids, uh, 16-year-old boy, 14-year-old girl, 12-year-old girl. Um, yeah, I'm sort of Chinese, you know. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> I used to know how to say my name in Chinese, but I've forgotten that. So, yeah, Australian-born, so that's a bit about me. And during the week, during the week, what do you get up to? During the week, yeah, I have the I have great privilege. Um, I do a couple of things. One is I serve as one of the pastors at Trinity Church Adelaide, so in on North Terrace. Uh, my wife and I have been there for 16 years since uh, we moved here from Sydney to take up a position there. Uh, the other part of my time, I work particularly with university students, uh, especially on North Terrace, so Adelaide Uni, City East, City West, uh, and. Uh, in connection with a group called uh, ES, or Evangelical Students. And that's a great joy and delight, helping uh, young people reach out to their friends with the good news about Jesus. So, yeah. Okay, now you're uh, speaking to us today on Psalm 126, and then a couple of psalms thereafter. What are you hoping that we will get out of your talks to us? Yeah, thanks, Robin. Um, it's a real delight to be here with you guys again. I was here last year, around this time, actually, sort of five, six months in after you'd begun, and uh, it's wonderful, actually, to see... Uh, Both some, I often say some old faces, people get insulted by that, some familiar faces, uh, as well as those who I haven't met before, and I look forward to meeting you over these next few weeks. Um, I understand you've been making your way through Romans, and that's a real bundle of laughs, isn't it? So, uh, I think as Carl and I talked, one of the reflections we had was, it'd be good just to have a little little bit of a pause, and um, to dig into the Psalms in a way... I think if you're a Christian, you'll know that the Psalms are wonderful expressions of people's experience and encounter with God, Uh, and I thought uh, that'd be a good way for us just to reflect for a few weeks in the the busyness of life just on what our good God is like. So we'll see three different aspects of God's character over the next few weeks, and hopefully there'll be things that will warm your heart and give you an encouragement to be wanting to share the good news about him with your friends. Brilliant. Thank you, Jeff. We shall get back to you in a minute. Um, Jeff is going to take some questions uh, when he after his sermon, so uh, just keep that in the back of your mind and save those up for him. And there'll be a there's no SMS line today, but there'll be an opportunity for you to sort of stick your hand up if you feel brave enough uh, and ask Jeff whatever's on your mind. Um, we're going to read the Bible now. Heather will come up in a minute, but firstly, let me just pray for us. Father God, thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known in the person of Jesus. Thank you that we can learn about both your character and your promises to us in the Bible. We pray that as we read the Bible this morning, you would reveal more of yourself to us, that we would grow more in our understanding of who you are. Please be with Jeff as he speaks with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Um, The reading today is from Psalm 126. So if you want to follow along in the Bibles, it's on page 967. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter 
our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Terrific. Thanks very much, Heather. Um, I'll ask you, please, uh, keep your Bibles open, but also if you take out the insert, you'll see there's an outline of what I'm going to speak about. There's three points on the front. On the reverse side, actually, the passage is printed, which you might find helpful to have in front of you, mostly because, unhelpfully, the passage turns over the page in your Bible in the middle of this one. So if you have that there, those bits of paper will be useful for you. Uh, as I said, it's a great delight to be with you here again today, um, you know, in the second year of this new church, uh, which, of course, was begun uh, not so that you'd solve an overflow pr- problem at the previous church when everyone couldn't fit in the building, even though that was a problem. Uh, this church was begun because the point was to try and reach more people in Adelaide with the good news about Jesus, and especially in this area of Unley. Uh, it's wonderful to hear that uh, this morning you have a life course coming up uh, in the next few weeks as a chance for people to come and really dig into who Jesus is. I understand that last Friday night you had... What do you call it? Nailed it? I guess that makes sense to you. But it sounds like a, a fantastic way to uh, be a part of the community and to invite others to be involved. Uh, that in due course they might come to hear something about Jesus. Uh, but in the second year, of course, sometimes you can start to think, my goodness, this is a lot of work. Uh, why exactly are we doing this each week? It seems to me that the best motivation, the best thing to remind us of why we're on about planting churches and reaching our city is not to tell you about all the great initiatives that are coming up, although I have no doubt they will be, but it's to remind us of what our God is like, the one whom we long to share with others. And that's actually part of the reason why we've picked Psalms for the next few weeks, uh, because I think in many ways the Psalms function as a description of what God is like and why he is worthy of both our lives and the lives of those around us. One of the challenges when it comes to reading the Psalms is that we naturally seem to see ourselves in them. They're very personal, heartfelt descriptions of people's experience of God, and that is true, and that's wonderful. Uh, But there's a danger in that as well. Uh, The danger is, of course, that you start to think that what I need to do is just be like the people in the Psalms. That's not the point of the Old Testament. Uh, The Old Testament ultimately points us towards... God and what he is like uh, because he is the only one who is perfect in every way. If you look on your handout you'll see underneath the Bible reading down the bottom I've just given you a couple of notes there as to why we're looking at the Psalms in this way. I think the key when reading the Psalms is to ask first and foremost what God is like uh, before we ask how we should live. And there's a couple of reasons underneath there that I've alluded to One of the reasons I think it's important to read the Psalms this way is that if you ask, what does the Psalm tell you about God, it naturally leads you to ask, how does the Psalm point you towards Jesus? Because as Christians, we understand that Jesus is the fullest revelation, the most perfect picture of what God is like. Uh, And I hope that by the end of this short series, you'll have a renewed confidence and and a desire and an excitement about reading the Psalms for yourself. If you look on the handout on the other side, you'll see the three points I want to make. What Psalm 126 tells us about God, 
Uh, Second, how it points us towards Jesus. And thirdly, what it might ask of us today. So, as we begin, let me pray and ask that God reveals himself to us in this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's been written for us to tell us uh, what you are like and to move us to praise. Uh, We ask that this morning you might give us a glimpse of you and your son, that we might long to live lives that bring honour and glory to him. Amen. Well, let's get going. Firstly, what Psalm 126 says about God. If you look at your Bible reading, either on the handouts or in your Bibles in front of you, uh, you'll notice actually that there is a heading to the psalm, and rightly Heather didn't read the headings because normally we don't, but this one actually you're meant to read. Uh, This one, we're told it's a song of ascents, a song of ascents. Now, group interaction, what do you know about the song of ascents? Anyone? A big pun? Thank you, Wayne. Uh, Anyone else? Songs of Ascents? They go up. Yeah, thank you. Along the way. Okay. There are 15 Songs of Ascents. They're songs, uh, Psalms 120 through 134. And uh, they're a collection within the Psalms that were quite literally to be sung by the Jews in the Old Testament as they ascended, as they made their way up the hill to the temple to meet with God. Hence the name Songs of Ascents. Um, The modern-day equivalent would be, these are the things that you listen to on your playlist as you drive to church on a Sunday morning. The stuff to kind of get you in the mood. Although I'm sure no one here drives, you all walk, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, Songs of Ascents, they're meant to be um, sung as God's people make their way up to meet with God. And you'll notice, of course, that it's a song that's very clearly in two parts. Uh, There is the past and there is the present. It's kind of a a before and after type song, if you're familiar with that kind of music. Let's have a look at the two parts. Firstly, part one, uh, part one, verses one to three, this is the backstory. This is what God has done for us. Let me read it again. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Okay, verse 1, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Uh, This is beginning with a memory. A memory of harder times in some capacity. And we're not told exactly what it was that had happened such that God was needed to restore the fortunes of Zion. Oh, by the way, Zion's just another word for Jerusalem. Perhaps it was a famine. Maybe it had been one of the many times in which Jerusalem was under siege from their enemies but had been delivered. Possibly it's a reference to the Babylonian exile when, in fact, Jerusalem was utterly destroyed, all the leaders were carried off into exile, but in due course... After 70 years, God brought them back. We're just not told. But whatever the situation, the effect of God's intervention, his restoration, is unmistakable. Verse 2, it fills his people with laughter and joy. Fills his people with laughter and joy. Now, I wonder if, just for a moment, you can recall an occasion when you felt this way. Unbridled rejoicing and celebration over a reversal of your fortunes. To give a really superficial example, perhaps you might think of a time on the sporting field 
when victory has been snatched miraculously from the jaws of defeat in the dying moments of the game. Uh, perhaps to give a, take that and a little bit further, uh, take Aussie Rules. Now, for the record, I think Aussie Rules is a stupid game. Um, <laughs> blasphemy, I understand, uh, but I was born in New South Wales, so, you know, we run forwards and throw backwards. Go figure. Imagine, if you will, for you South Australians, imagine your team, I was going to say remember your team winning a premiership, but <laughs> who could remember that far? Um, Harsh, hey? But the celebration, the delight that your fortunes have been reversed. The delight of God's people at whatever God has done is so genuinely heartfelt that, verse 2, it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. Their celebration is so transparently obvious to others that everyone else knows what has taken place. And I wonder if this is the reason why the inhabitants of Canaan trembled at the arrival of the Israelites after God had rescued an entire nation from slavery in Egypt in one night. They could see what was coming because they could see what their God was like. Well, that's the backstory. In the past, at some point, God has done great things for us, but in the second part, verses 4 through 6, there's a change of gear. We're dragged into the present situation. Uh, To use the musical imagery, there is a discordant note, though, at this point, maybe a minor key in the song. Because verse 4 opens, Restore our fortunes, O Lord. That asks the question, why? Why do they need their fortunes restoring again? What's happening today that they need to appeal to God once more? Let me read verses 4 through 6. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow will return with songs of joy carrying sheaves with them. Here's the great dilemma in Psalm 126. So whereas verses 1 through 3 recounted the great things God has done for his people in the past, in the present, in the here and now, at this very moment, their experience is not of mouths filled with laughter or tongues with songs of joy, Rather, their experience, verses 5 and 6, is of tears and of weeping. Now, once again, we're not told why. We don't know what the particular situation is that's caused the people to react in this way. I wonder, though, if the agricultural imagery in verses 4 through 6 suggests that it might be famine. Verse 4, dreams of streams in the Negev of reaping in verse 5, of seed to sow and carrying sheaves in verse 6. And for us who are Australians, thinking about a drought that's crippling our land, I suspect we have some sense of what this situation might have been like. Whatever the exact situation, the song is on the one hand both honestly realistic, 
It's honestly realistic about how hard life can be at times, almost unbearably, a struggle just to survive. Honestly realistic about that and unfailingly optimistic. Unfailingly optimistic about the future because verses 5 and 6 insist that those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Despite the present, present hardship, the song calls us to look forward to when things will be reversed again. And I imagine at this point, as at least I read this psalm, I imagine a great panorama of harvest time. The sun is shining gloriously. The farm workers are singing heartily as they bring in the crops. Fat sheaves of rich produce slung over their shoulders. Joyful laughter filling the country air. Because after months and months of hard work, of planting and tending, waiting anxiously for rain, fighting off pestilence, at last this season's crop is going to be a resounding success. Amidst the present day struggles, where does such a confidence come from? Where does such a hope for the future arise from? Well, the answer actually lies in the first half of the psalm. In verses 1 through 3. You see, what God has done in the past gives us confidence about what God will do again in the future. And you'll see on your handout there that I've just made a brief note. A basic tenet of modern psychology is that the best indicator of future behaviour is past performance. Well, there's something of what Psalm 126 tells us about God. Let's jump for a moment then forward to ask the question, how does Psalm 126 point us towards Jesus? Jesus, who is the fullest revelation of God. And this is, of course, critical for us because, well, to point out the obvious, none of us are Old Testament Jews making our way up the hill to the temple. So what does the psalm tell us about Jesus, the fullest picture of God? Well, there's lots of different ways in which we might see the good things that the Lord has done for us in Christ. See, Jesus comes God's greatest restoration. In Jesus, God has lived amongst us. God has become one of us. God has atoned for our sins when we could not, as we've been reminded this morning in that meal of remembrance. In Jesus, God has adopted us as his own children, with Christ as our eldest sibling. But as I reflected on Psalm 126 this week, I kept finding myself being drawn to Jesus' opening sermon in the New Testament, the so-called Sermon on the Mount. Because there, in Matthew chapter 5, we see how Jesus is both honestly realistic about the present and unfailingly optimistic about the future. Matthew 5 verse 3, there on your handout. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Well, what Psalm 126 tells us about what God is like, how it points us towards Jesus. Let me try and draw a few threads together for us by asking, what does Psalm 126 ask of you and me today? Well, let's start with what Psalm 126 doesn't ask us to do. It doesn't ask us to um, sell up and turn your hand to farming. Although, if you do, I suspect this psalm will probably mean more to you than for us urbane city slickers. You probably have a sense of that dependence on God in the way in which, uh, well, we actually mostly depend on ourselves. Now, what I think Psalm 126 does ask is if you will live by this truth about God. Namely, the best indicator of God's future performance is his past behaviour. And the test of whether you're willing to do so is if you will keep sowing, even in tears, in the confident expectation that one day you will reap with joy. Will you continue, even amidst the hardships and struggles of life, to keep calling on him to restore your fortunes, certain that he will do so because of his impeccable track record? Will you persist, even when living by faith can be so incredibly hard? Even if you will, what makes it particularly difficult is that in Psalm 126, there's no indication of when God will intervene. Uh, To use the agricultural metaphor, you don't know if that bumper crop is coming this season or next. And so one of the things that Psalm 126 does, I think, is that it denies triumphalism in the Christian life. Instead... It accepts the present reality of hardship. It's honest about our inability to eradicate it, try though we might. And instead, it fixes our hope to look forward to God's restoration in his timing. Now, let me acknowledge, I understand just how incredibly countercultural this is. Uh, After all, we are very fortunate to live in 21st century Adelaide, where, on the whole, we can mostly avoid suffering or at least mitigate it pretty well. Culture watchers, in fact, say that most modern ethics, particularly amongst younger people, are based almost entirely on the reduction of pain and the pursuit of pleasure. Rather than a conviction about what's right or wrong, or even sacrificial service of others, as perhaps was the case more in days gone by. Now, I'm not being particularly critical. Who wouldn't take pleasure over pain if you could get it? Full power to you. And I don't want you to mishear me here. Christianity never glorifies hardship. It never seeks out suffering as if somehow that makes us more commendable before God. That kind of view is not Christianity. That's a kind of asceticism. It's actually remarkably like Buddhism. And the worst thing about it is that it hardly paints God in an attractive light, in a commendable light. What kind of unbeliever would ever be interested in that sort of God who just wants to make us suffer to prove a point? 
But notice, if you will, one last time how Psalm 126 works. See, verse 3 said, we are filled with joy now. We are filled with joy now, even as, verse 4, God, verse 4, we call on God to restore our fortunes. Psalm 126 is describing a joy based on God's actions that transcends our present experience, even our suffering. It's what I think the Apostle Paul is describing in Philippians 4. I printed there on your handout. It's the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. And today I just want to ask you, isn't this what you dream of? A real joy that's unaffected by particular hardship? A joy that you experience independent of success or failure? A joy that is powerfully attractive to those around us who spend every waking minute desperately seeking meaning and fulfilment and satisfaction, but they'll never find it if they will not come to Christ. Surely this kind of joy in our lives will set us apart. Surely, eventually, it will lead others to notice, to ask us to give an answer for the reason, for the hope that we have when this world has nothing to offer. Psalm 126 tells us that ours is a God who can fill us with joy if only we will ask him to do so and then trust his timing. So let me finish then with two questions printed there on your handout. Firstly, why do you find it so hard to rejoice in the midst of tears? Why do you find it so hard to rejoice in the midst of tears? Is it because, to just be brutally honest, it feels like your circumstances are overwhelming? The never-ending stress at work, the heartache of relationships that are broken down irretrievably, the devastation of ongoing physical pain, or maybe just the dull ache of constant disappointment that has washed away any hope over many years. You might be sitting there today thinking, well, you know what, Jeff, that's all very nice and well for you to say that, but you don't know what I'm going through. And I don't. But that's not the point of Psalm 126. Psalm 126 says that it's only by sowing in tears that eventually we reap with songs of joy. And if that's what Psalm 126 is saying, I think it leaves us with a choice. Either we wallow in our misery or we try to dig ourselves out of our own hole or we choose to rejoice today because what God has done before persuades us that he will do so again in future. 
Do you see the real gift of Psalm 126 to us today? The gift of Psalm 126 is that it doesn't dwell on our experiences. Instead, it fixes our gaze on God's character. It directs us not to look inwards for strength to somehow withstand a particular situation. Rather, it causes us to look upwards. Upwards to the one who loves us with an everlasting love. To borrow Paul's words from Romans 8, verse 32, on your handout. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul is saying that if God has gone this far for us already in giving us his son, he is not going to give up on us now. Second question. What might help you to remember the great things the Lord has done for us? What might help you to remember the great things the Lord has done for us? Well, I'm going to finish with a simple and hopefully practical suggestion for you. Here it is. In this week ahead, each day, for seven days, make it your goal to tell one person one thing that God has done for you. Seven days, once a day, one person, one thing God has done for you. It doesn't really matter what it is. That one thing could be something from the big picture cosmic story of the Bible. An episode that particularly stirs your heart. Maybe it's the time when God rescued an entire nation from slavery to another overnight and brought them into a new land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Maybe it's a time when God plucked an obscure shepherd boy from nowhere and made him the greatest king that Israel has ever seen. Maybe it's the time when God took the vilest persecutor of Christians and converted him, quite literally, into the greatest church planter and evangelist the world has ever known. The Apostle Paul the one through whom the gospel was to be taken to the ends of the earth, even to us, right here today in Adelaide, Adelaide, 2,000 years later. It could be something from the big picture storyline of the Bible, or maybe that one thing that you're going to share with one person each day for the next week, maybe it could be from the details or minutiae of your own life. In the unexpected blessings that can only be explained by God's goodness and character, not attributed to random chance. One thing, once a day, for one week. Tell someone of the great things that God has done for us. Maybe that might help in remembering the good things that he has done for us. And at the very least, uh, as I said at the start, uh, this is a song of ascent. It's meant to be sung on the way to church. So at the very least, you could start today. It's on the Lord's Day. And you could make sure you do it again next Sunday. Because I think in the end, in the long run, that's how it will become to be said among the nations. The Lord has done great things for them. 
and upon hearing, others will ask how they might have that for themselves as well. Let me finish, and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good things that you've done for us, supremely in the Lord Jesus Christ, in his sacrificial death, and in his resurrection as the first fruit of a harvest to come. We acknowledge that in the here and now, sometimes things can feel overwhelming. So we thank you that the best indicator of your future performance is your past behaviour. And in this week ahead, we ask that you might give us opportunity and courage to be able to testify to the good things that you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.